0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Program, uh, which organized today's event. I'd like to welcome all of our online live stream uh, viewers. And in addition to that, I'd like to welcome those of you who watch us later on YouTube. So uh, the Commonwealth Club has put on over 700 programs since the pandemic began, Well, We had the equipment for our big programs and uh, we decided since we couldn't have an audience anymore that we would live stream everything that we could to bring you the thought leaders across the world. And one thing we we discovered, of course, is that with live streaming, we can bring people in from everywhere. And we have. So today we have Amartya Sen, the Nobel Prize winner in economics in the 1990s um, and uh, really quite a background uh, life. And he has a new book out called Home in the World. Um, and it's about his life and his thoughts. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club again, Amartya Sen. Thank you very much. Well, uh, let's get started uh, directly uh, with some of your childhood stories. Well, the, the main one being that that you your family was connected to a very famous man, Rabindranath uh, Tagore, um, and his school. And uh, why don't you? And, and he even gave you your first name uh, from your book, right? So. Why don't you tell about your connection with him and, and, and mention if you can, uh, you know, that he's very misunderstood in the West, uh, because of a couple of poems.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I was, I happened to be born in the campus of the school, uh, the university that, uh, when the article started, my grandfather was, uh, Uh, professor of Sanskrit there. And uh, and, uh, uh, it so happened that I was born in my mother's family. Uh, My father's family was in Dhaka in Bangladesh. It was quite common in those days that the first child is born in the mother's family. I think the reason Mm -hmm. for that practice is, I think the parents often didn't trust the family of their daughter's uh husband and anyway, uh used to it, right? Yeah.
1: I said they they want to make sure that the daughters are being taken care of. They want
0: to- <laughs> Yeah, indeed. Well I came from Dhaka minus two months old and went mm-hmm. back to Dhaka plus two months old. And I was born meanwhile in my uh, grandfather's home. And uh, this was a home close to Rovindraat himself. And this is a place which was um, very much a family connection uh, 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 place. Uh, My mother had gone to school there uh, a long time earlier uh, and it was already a co-educational institution. My father and my mother had certain uh, eccentricities, which, of course, many people in Santiniquetum had. Namely, a uh, uh, hundred years ago, she trained in judo, and she was a skilled dancer and would uh, played the lead part in many of Tiggles' dance dramas in, in, in Calcutta theater. So she was very much there. And, and uh, I was born there, but then soon after with my, with my parents, with my father accepting, visiting professors within Burma in Mandalay. And then we located the professor at Takagi University. I was there, but then at the age of about seven, I moved to Santiniketan. And uh, initially, it was an involuntary decision. The war was going on. The Japanese had started bombing Calcutta, which happened on five occasions. Uh, and anyway, the parents, my parents thought it would be safer in some kind of rural area which the University was. So I went there, but I absolutely loved it. I loved uh, the uh, atmosphere, the fact that Tagore was very focused on reasoning, that being above mm-hmm. all, and freedom, uh, freedom to do what you like. Mm-hmm. There was such a contrast with the school, St. Gregory's, which was a better school in terms of uh, normal training however very uh, strict in it <laughs> where the tantaniketan I was free there was open self library I could go up and down the five floors and read what I liked and created my own taste and my own decision to uh uh, do something and not do others. And unlike many others in my time in in, in in India, I knew as a result a fair amount about uh, um, unlikely places from an educational point of view, like uh, quite a bit about Africa, quite a bit about, mm-hmm. about Latin America, the relation between China and India and Japan and and Korea and so on. And I absolutely adored that I could do those things without anyone stopping me from doing <laughs> it.
1: And now we're talking we're talking about you were very young at the time, right? How old were you when you were re- seven
0: at the time. Yeah. And I remember certain events like um because of the war of Propaganda. Chiang Kai Feg visited our school, mm-hmm. and he gave a lecture for a little over half an hour in Chinese and Mandarin without any translation. And mm-hmm. I thought that that was a quite an exacting uh, demand <laughs> on seven-year-old children to listen to it, but we did, and. Yeah. and so I had the interest.
1: Yeah, in, the, in the middle of the war, I'm, I'm trying to figure out why, why he would give a lecture to seven-year-old children.
0: <laughs> you have to ask the British Indian authorities to know that. I think in the last moment, it was decided by the ruling empire, the British Raj, that yeah. it would be good. It would be very inspiring for Chiang kai to come uh, to uh, um to, to, something to get on, and they didn't manage to find a translating arrangement. So right, there right. I was. Uh, I actually had the opportunity of being invited to tea at the end of the meeting with uh, mm-hmm. Chiang Kai-shek, uh, being entertained without much uh, ability to c- communicate with Madame Chiang, I think, who was, of course, mm-hmm. enormously uh, fluent. And I thought even at the age of 17, I thought she was extraordinarily beautiful. And I <laughs> <my> admired that, too.
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing story. Uh, one, that, that they would have the lecture, two, that they would have tea with the children. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, but, I... Uh, I, uh, You know, these students broke discipline at some stage. After about 10 minutes of silence, there was a little whisper to each other, and that whisper mm. turned rather bigger over time. Yeah. And I asked Madame Xian kai whether that looked very rude to her, and she was being very well-trained. Uh, indicated <laughs> she did not know what I was talking about. Uh, and everything was as perfect as they could have been. So I learned something about good manners also at that time.
1: Well, let's let's tell another story from your book, which I thought was just great that give, would give everybody an idea about the kind of guy you were. Um, you you knew what the definition of island was. Uh, and and when you were given that definition, you used it knowingly incorrectly in order to push the the envelope. Why don't you tell that story about using the definition of island? Definition of uh, yeah, the definition of island. You know, you you oh you, island, 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 yeah, island, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is my your character. <laughs> yeah, I,
0: yeah, I discovered that island was defined precisely as a landmass surrounded by water. Right. And being uh, uh, obnoxious, it occurred <laughs> to me that it was wrong to say that Ceylon was the largest island. Because if you look India, uh, there are two big rivers on the east, uh, Ganges and Ramaphosa. both right. originate in a lake? called Man of Sarawar. And these two flow out of that eastward, one north of the Himalayas and one south of it. And then they meet up in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then together they go down to the sea. Now it occurred to me, if you take the, if you <coughs> join up Ganges and Bungaputra, right. there's a landmass in between with two All rivers on yeah. two sides and meeting again <laughs> after their origin somewhere in one of the days. If you add that up, that land was is larger. Than larger than Sri Lanka. Yeah. Sri Lanka, and I, I insisted that that was the largest island, and I had real <laughs> uh, controversy on that subject, Uh how, how old were you when you did this joke? I was nine, I think.
1: Nine years old. Okay, so that now, now our audience has a much better idea.
0: Yeah, I was yeah. very uh, uh, keen on establishing that, when people went on saying it has to be sea around them, and I uh, protested violently because there were little islands we have been already told about in the River Seine. In, in France and, uh, in near Paris and if those are islands with no sea around, why couldn't my little Ganges Ramafuta story lead yeah. to an island which is bigger than any other in the Indian subcontinent? <laughs> yeah,
1: and I, I think uh, think all the people who are listening should remember people in their classes uh, who who you know couldn't do that until maybe eighteen or seventeen. But even then, uh, that's that—that's one of the clear signs you're on your way to a Nobel Prize in something, if you can—if you can reason your way like that accurately and and, and upset everybody.
0: <laughs> I, I think my teacher said that you may follow definitions well, but you yeah, actually yeah, yeah. have no sense of your own to understand what is an island. And <laughs> what is an island.
1: <laughs> I, you I, would have made I, a great I, lawyer. <laughs> So uh, there were two big, terrible events, I mean, besides World War II, there were two big events uh, while you were young in in, uh, the area. And that is the earthquake, the the Bihar earthquake, but also the uh, famine. And you learned from all these things. By the way, you you mentioned St. Gregory's, you went to school at St. Gregory's. And I, I found it interesting that school education became education for everyone became one of your important principles in life, even though you didn't like really going to St. Gregory's.
0: <laughs> well, I, I was very keen on, on expanding education generally certainly. Yeah. And uh, the first school, I mean, I eventually taught Andreas places like Alcata, Harvard and MIT and Stanford. But my yeah. initial teaching was in, in, in the school that, uh, as my classmates and I, in our final year in school, started for the tribal children in the neighborhood because they had no school at all. I mean, mm-hmm. when the British left India, India's literacy rate was only 13%. There were very few schools anyway. And we started uh, that. And uh, in the evening, it's a night school. And we used to go on our little bikes, in the evening, and I was very proud of the fact that a number of tribal children uh, learned to read, write, and, and do basic arithmetic uh, in in our uh, schooling arrangement. Uh, and I am very proud of that.
1: Well, let's, before we go back to the, the famine and the earthquake, let's talk about education for everybody uh, uh, a little bit more, because it's a really big principle, and it's it's something so simple in economics. I mean, what what can you do for the economics of a country better? I mean, for for thousands of years, people believed that you shouldn't educate women at all everywhere throughout throughout the planet. There were some dissenters, you know, uh, but but look what's happened in the last century. You know, I mean, there are, there are more women in, in uh, getting university degrees now than men, and how what has it done for our economy? Um, and uh, there's absolutely no reason to draw a line anywhere. Yeah, no.
0: no, absolutely. And this is, it's interesting because it's a subject that uh, goes back to a uh, uh, long time Uh almost any country. People didn't educate uh, educate girls and yet there were protests about it um, mm-hmm. uh, in, in all kinds of places. In India, uh, there were uh, a number of uh, women scholars who were known as as rather unusual, and yet uh, they were among the leaders. And it's interesting that, if you think, I mean, one of the persons I admire most is Gautam Buddha, wrongly, uh, actually, wrongly pronounced in American or English as Buddha, uh, mm-hmm. V-U-D-D-H-A Buddha, and mm-hmm. Uh, He was really an an enormously liberated man, wanting education and so on. But somehow, even though he wanted girls' education, and that was important, he did not want girls to become, women to become uh, free. And Mm. one of his uh, advisors and students, fewfold, Ananda, asked this question again and again, why not? Why not? Mm. And what that doesn't, I think, among, among the clarity of what does answers to difficult questions, this is, I think, a, an area of darkness where his answers were not, in my judgment, satisfactory. I mean, I was a great admirer, the, and in school mm. often even tried to register myself as a Buddhist. But I did think that would failed us uh, on on that yeah. particular point. <laughs> he
1: he also left his wife and children to, to seek enlightenment. So, did so. do that, I, but I'm not sure
0: whether, how much I'd hold that against because he thought that, <laughs> he thought that you know that life was worthless really, and yeah. there was the uh, was basically Hinduism. Sanatana Dharma, as they would call it, that you can get uh, to enlightenment by uh, uh, starving your body. And, yeah. and for two or three years, he didn't eat anything, and he became skeleton-like. There are some lovely sculptures, uh, particularly in China, of his yeah. skeleton shaped with uh but then eventually he decided he wasn't getting anywhere. And there was this right. marvelous statement, you can't enrich your mind by starving your body. And wow. I think that is a very important thing to know. Uh, well, and, wish- and then, of course, he became a normal human being, but concentrated on uh, and how to advance your mind. And I think... Uh, I would say that the world benefited a lot from his leaving his wife and children and, <laughs> and trying to do something uh, for for the
1: advancement of understanding. I wish more people would have listened to his idea that you don't need to starve your body to to uh, enlighten your mind, because uh, the people still do that. Obviously, it's not. It could have been more popular without it. Um, so let's go back to your, your childhood and you, you had these two terrible things and you learned from both of them. Um, the Bihar earthquake was an 8.4 earthquake and 30,000 people died in this earthquake. Um, and um, and what you wrote about was the disagreement between Tagore and Mahatma Gandhi. Why don't you, why don't you tell about that? Because I think that it, it's, your, your book is very valuable and you have all these famous thinkers, but you also show, just like what you just did with Buddha. Really, really good, but you fell apart right here.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. You see, Gandhiji was very uh, single-mindedly concentrated at that time in removing untouchability. And therefore, he thought that this is an opportunity. Uh, you know, people um, will often will think of the Mahatma aspect, uh, the greatness uh, of his... Uh, truthful soul uh, asterisk, but overlooked that he was also quite a cunning man. And he decided oh, well. <laughs> that uh, he could use the earthquake by saying mm-hmm. this is the punishment of God for our practicing untouchability. And mm-hmm. he thought that that might influence people. Tegov was absolutely, uh, I mean, not Nartegov was absolutely furious in uh, mm-hmm. getting an ethical proposition out of an epistemic fact of, of the earthquake. And he thought also this is a way of corrupting people's mind and reasoning. Mm-hmm. And so he argued fiercely against Gandhi. But since a lot of people took the to other side, eventually he thought that he had overdone it and uh, he tried to defend Gandhi, saying that uh, you have to look also be, behind and see the greatness of the man, and not mm-hmm. just uh, this particular statement, which is entirely wrong and unacceptable. So I was—I got very involved in that, and uh, and when at the age of eleven or twelve, I think we had a visit from Gandhi ji from uh, to Santiniketan. And I tried to argue with him on that, but uh, uh, I was not allowed to uh, continue on that argument.
1: Yeah. Well, I, the, the way I look at it is uh, at least uh, for American and American analogy is baseball. If you, if you, uh, um, are a superstar, you, you still only hit, uh, uh, hit 40% of the time and you strike out more often, maybe even than that. So. Uh, you know, the men that, and and the women who've accomplished great things for human civilization are certainly not uh, perfect they're If they can get it done right half the time, it's a big advantage to us. So, um, but I I thought that was very interesting. And I think one of the differences is that Tagore uh, was uh, an educator and a a writer, an author, and that's what he got the Nobel prize for. And, And Gandhi was, well, he was an activist, but he was also a politician. And, and, uh, you know, their politicians jump on, on events all the time. If somebody gets shot, you know, or there's a, a shooting at a school, then they talk about gun control if they want to, or, or just the opposite. Everybody always jumps on an event. So it, I, I saw this thing by Gandhi in exactly that light. You know, it was an event that could highlight what he wanted to talk about. And so he moved he moved right in there.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, one of the things, one of the other subjects on which to go and Gandhi disagreed, is that Tagov was in favor of intelligent instruments and Gandhi was very keen on physical labor as such. So when he would weave a a cloth uh, he would use uh, a fin to produce the uh, uh, thread. Uh, He would do it on a on the charcoal, and the spinning wheel, which mm-hmm. uh, Tego tried and said, it's the combining uh, maximum of, of effort with a minimum mm-hmm. of result. Because it <laughs> almost nothing. And you uh, and didn't <laughs> see that um, uh, uh, making greatness out of hard labor had anything yeah. in it. Uh, that's a subject from which I um, get an opportunity to think about again later. When I was in a student in Trinity College, Cambridge, and was mm-hmm. very involved with one of the great philosophers of Trinity, namely Wittgenstein, I was mm-hmm. struck by the fact that Wittgenstein had a rather similar value that he was very keen on yeah. physical labor. As opposed to mm-hmm. intellectual labor, and even reasoning, sometimes, even though he was the master of reasoning himself, so that took me to in a direction which I got uh, at a very young age from mm-hmm. the debate between the two uh, Tagore and, and 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 Gandhi, which was part of my uh, recollection a part of my uh, rejuvenated interest in in mm-hmm. college when I was trying to understand why is it that Wittgenstein thought physical labor was so important. I think it's connected with his politics, his class he yeah. he thought that most people in the world survived by physical labor and he wanted to join them i think yeah. there was there was that, and there was an element of that certainly in Gandhi also.
1: Yeah, you you mentioned uh, that sometimes politics, uh, political goals, Trump, um, you know, the economic goals. Uh, You used an example from Krakow, I think, uh, you know, that they wanted, that the government wanted to change Krakow's, uh, you know, politics. And so what did they do? They, the the communists put, put in a factory that didn't really make much sense, but... Tell the story because I think that's great because whenever you try to manipulate, you you, you mentioned it, you, whenever you try to manipulate a goal, you often end up with a totally, at a totally different location than you thought you were going.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I saw it in the making because I visited uh, Krakow yeah. and the factory was called Nova Huta, and Nova Huta was set at a place where a steel factory shouldn't be, it didn't have iron ore, didn't have uh, coal, anything like that. But mm. it was still working. The idea was that next to Krakow, which is a very reactionary, quote-unquote, town, and even mm. during the Second World War, it uh, did not provide resistance to, to the uh, Nazi Germans at all. Uh, and so they thought that having a smart factory there, they would change Krakow. What happened in the end is Nova Huta uh, under the leadership of a uh, right-wing trade union movement moved in the direction of krakow rather than the other way around rather than the other way so, around so the difficulty in changing people was clearly mm-hmm. underestimated by the foolish communists in a way that uh quite an interesting thing to to, to study and what.
1: try to think it through and figure out what will persuade people. Well, you've done a lot of work on, on uh, food distribution and so on, and, and that co- goes back to the famine that you, uh, you know, experienced as a young child. Um, not you didn't personally experience it because your family was, was uh, not in the situation, but you were able to, to use that experience later when you studied it to understand what caused famines and it's not, not food availability. So why don't you talk about that in your, your, your work in that area? In economics.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I was uh, struck by the fact that um, when people were dying, and between two to three million people died in that famine, uh, the ruling British kept on insisting that uh, the amount of food available per head wasn't very low at all. uh, And how come uh, there could be a famine? So they had the theory of famine that they could be no famine when the food supply hasn't fallen. But the fact is that even though the facts were right, the, the theory of famine was entirely wrong because if there was a sudden rise in demand and in a war period uh, with uh, armies moving in, uh, construction, air drones, and many other things happening, the mm-hmm. demand could go up. And when the demand goes up with the supply of uh, food remaining, rice remaining the same, then the prices could shoot up. And mm-hmm. they, and the British made things even worse by uh, trying to prevent uh, uh, any kind of rebellion in Calcutta, because they thought that that would be disastrous for the war effort. So they uh, bought as much rice as they can in the rural areas, in whatever price was needed to buy them. So as a result, the rural demand for rice went up sharply, and prices went up uh, in a in a big way. Uh, and of course, those whose money income income in money term remained mm-hmm. the same, they couldn't afford this at all. So they. Main victims were rural laborers uh, who couldn't afford it and, and died in large numbers. They often died in Calcutta because they were told wrongly that Calcutta had relief, food relief. The Raj, which Raj, did not arrange any kind of relief at all. Mm-hmm. So these people, in procession, they were going on to Calcutta, hoping to get some food, which they didn't. And very often people died in large number in Calcutta. And yet uh, uh, there was no reason for them to go to Calcutta because it wasn't better supplied, except for the locals. Those who lived in Calcutta did get their rationing card and did get fed. But those who came from rural areas seeking relief in Calcutta didn't. And so, it was a complicated story in which you need mm-hmm. a little bit more economic, not just the amount of food, but at least demand and supply. And right. and, and 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 the uh, the story was a was a terrible disaster. And the the interesting point is that when the famine commission report came, the government, the British government revised the facts and they claimed the price the supply of rice must have been less than we thought uh, <laughs> and uh, they didn't revise their theory and no, that's no. also made me think <laughs> the one sad fact in in economics is that people often find it easier to revise their theory revise the <laughs> facts than to re-examine their theory
1: Facts, facts seem to be more fungible now than ever before. Nobody seems to care much about the facts. You know, it's a very unfortunate thing. Um, you you learn from that. Um, I, I think it was very fascinating your your uh, story about wartime London, when uh, food was rationed, um, and that actually and, and there was less food, but because it was rationed at low prices, poor people actually had more food to eat than they did. Before that rationing, and, and it, it it gave some economic insights. So what, why don't you talk about that? Because that's that was also uh, to go back to Calcutta for just a second. I mean, this must be where the images of Calcutta with everybody dying on the streets comes from. Is is during this famine?
0: Well, yeah, the Calcutta thing was '43. This is right. happening just after that. Uh, right. The British decided that they were getting into a real problem, uh, whereby they supply of food was falling so much compared with the demand that there must be starvation. But then they decided that they could stop that by having rationing. They still thought, as in Calcutta, the only thing Mm. is that they reserved that in Calcutta only for the locals. And the bulk of the people Mm. in Calcutta were people who had come in search of relief and help to Calcutta Mm. City. Now, what they did in 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 uh, uh, in, in in England, uh, in Britain, Britain generally, uh, was to give everyone a ration card and and make food available to them at controlled prices. So the difference was equality in this case, uh, as opposed to inequality in Calcutta. But yeah. uh, the result of it was that suddenly everyone had a ration card and could buy food at controlled prices prices at which they have not been able to buy food in the past uh era mm-hmm. so the result of it that despite the shortage of food people were willing people were able to buy food and and suddenly cases of under nutrition uh, Became much smaller and severe under nutrition almost entirely disappeared, and Britain learned something from that, and that was the mm-hmm. beginning of the welfare state and mm-hmm. and similarly they learned something about healthcare care that health care being divided in an egalitarian way could be dramatically good for the society, and the national health service was born shortly after the Second World War ended. So Britain got lessons from this uh, by seeing what was happening and their their difficult experiences during the war, and they learned something from it, and the the welfare state was warned at that time. Uh, Whereas in the four colonial areas, uh, there was no attempt to Change any system or anything like that, mm-hmm. nor to stop the uh, decimation, the the death of the rural people that came to Calcutta in false search of some nourishment, which didn't happen.
1: You you make the observation about the British Empire in India. Uh, it, it was almost 200 years there. And you, you say that if they had only applied the principles that they did for their own people, um, you know, to India, they would have done just fine. And I think you'll find Americans on exactly the same page because uh, the Americans also felt uh, before their revolution that, that the British were not listening to to them um, and uh, they didn't have representation, they just got taxes, as they said. So um, it's really unfortunate because they did a lot of interesting things uh, in their empire, but they missed the big issue. Yeah, but you know. the
0: interesting thing is that Actually, David Hume comments on it. And he right. said, I don't understand what takes Americans and Indians so long to recognize <laughs> that there is something for them to protest about. Um, mm-hmm. But you see, I think the difficulty, in case of America, of course, if it became independent, that was fine. But mm. in case of India, the difficulty is that the kind of big things that Britain, India got from Britain, like free newspapers, freedom of speech generally uh, having rationing whenever it's needed and so on these could be done when you are looking after the population in general so Mm -hmm. in the absence of democracy you could not have those things so in some Mm -hmm. ways it shows a question that uh, came up earlier also uh, that democracy was very central to uh, to understanding that. And so uh, the good thing that uh, India could have got but didn't get from uh, Britain was not available to India because it wasn't a democracy. Uh, it was a colonial rule, ruled by colonial masters. Uh, and they, uh, you cannot run a, 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 democr- a non a colonial rule uh, without democracy with free newspapers, because mm-hmm. newspapers will be criticizing the government all the time. So <laughs> there is a real dilemma there. And mm-hmm. the Indian, the, the duality of the British experience brings that out India could become a democracy just after the independence and have free new favors. On the other hand, mm-hmm. it couldn't have free new flavors as long as the British were ruling mm-hmm. it. So there was no way the British could give out free new and retain the colonial rule. Right. There, 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 <laughs> there. That's where the central East democracy comes in.
1: Yeah. And uh, and Mahatma Gandhi certainly understood the the, uh, the difficulty and how he could manipulate the system in order to get the freedom from the British. That, that there was something that they would be too embarrassed to do. Um, very very clever lawyer. Um, so uh, one thing I think you could help explain, especially uh, to to everyone in, in the United States and everywhere else, um, that that confuses people if they don't look at it carefully uh, is that India was very enamored with the Soviet Union uh, when it became, not immediately free, but uh, soon after that. Um, and they don't think about, like, education for all the different issues that were big for India to, to get education to an entire country quickly and, and uh, you know, to, to take care of the people. Uh, but, you know, then, then of course, there were all the Stalinist problems, uh, which you, you detail. Once somebody is in favor of something, they can't see... Uh, the facts anymore. They have to change the facts uh, to fit their theory. Um, so why don't, why don't you tell a little bit about that? Because uh, India was pretty much not, I mean, independent and in, 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 in a neutral camp, but they were they were supporters of the Soviet Union for a long time, uh, politically. 10, 15, 20 years.
0: Yeah. Well, I think the trouble was that they um, uh, the, the British may have underestimated. I think they did. The importance of education that's what, right. not for their own country, because from the nineteenth century uh, 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 the beginning of the nineteenth century, the British were trying to uh educate people uh in uh, in their homeland all the time, but paid no attention to that in the colonies, and there I must say now that this Russia is behaving rather badly in Ukraine and so on. I have to remember the glory days when shortly after the Soviet Revolution, they did think that they have to spread education everywhere. Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, uh, Azerbaijan, and so on, because these were part of the, I mean, that's one positive aspect of Marxist thinking that education for all was very central. When Tigor, when Tagore, visited uh, the Soviet Soviet Union uh, in uh, 1930, uh, he he admired the fact that education had spread so rapidly there in -hmm. the Soviet colonies, but not in the British colonies. Uh, On the other hand, another athlete came out there because he said this thing, and he said, why don't you uh, have practice of democracy? And he gave this interview to Izvestia, and Izvestia was unable to publish it, and it would not be published for decades until Gorbachev uh, changed yeah. things. Uh, it came out in Manchester Guardian, but it's not in the in Soviet Union. So on one side, the Soviet Union was succeeding in education and failing in democracy, Britain yeah. was failing in both in the uh, <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, there was no democracy. Probably a bit more than I don't know. But certainly uh, in education it failed very badly. And uh, it, the history of these countries and even of different styles of colonialism have not to feature. Even today if you look at the map and look at uh, East, you look at Asia that were under Russian control, you will see a much higher level of literacy uh, and numeracy mm-hmm. than you will see in places ruled by the British and the French and the others like Afghanistan, or for that matter, India. <laughs> and... Yeah. So it uh, a really interesting thing to uh, look at. There was a foul theory, too, because the education thing was directly connected with, uh, with uh, Marxian understanding at that time. There was mm-hmm. almost total neglect of democratic virtues, and that was uh, terrible. On the other hand, uh, there was... An understanding of the importance of education in the, in the Soviet Empire in a way that didn't happen in the in the French, German, uh, British, Portuguese, Spanish Empire. Yeah,
1: well, it it, it shows that one of your other themes is is the uh, the importance of paying attention to the consequences of your theory when you put it into effect. Um, you, you you mentioned one example of the permanent settlement uh, rules uh, that that they were well reasoned and humane ideas that had disastrous results and uh, you, you you have to pay attention why don't why don't you explain that that one to to, to how that happened
0: yeah which which one was did you have it
1: permanent the permanent settlement rules
0: yeah oh yeah uh, yeah that is quite interesting that's a uh, uh, We knew, we understood from the work of a historian of distinction, uh, Ranjit Guha, uh, uh, that um, what ended up being an absolutely terrible uh, land system actually was generated by enormous effort on the part of the English administrators to Mm -hmm. find a good system of government, uh, in, you see, there were a number of people in the early days who were concerned with good system of government. It's not often recognized that what Robert Clive had no interest in this at all. Mm-hmm. Warren Hastings, who was mm-hmm. severely criticized by Edwin Burke, did have an interest in that. He mm-hmm. did want to have a better system, uh, and, and of course. He wanted to regenerate uh, ancient Indian culture. He himself knew some Sanskrit, some Bengali, uh, Warren Eastern did. And uh, so I think the history has got it mixed up. But in that period, they were looking for a system of land settlement that would work very well. And they thought one way of doing it would be that if... Uh, the landlords giving uh, were well, given permanent and control over their land, and they can charge the pheasant under them whatever they like. Mm-hmm. They will be able to produce a prosperity, which will generate a good, successful uh, culture and 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 economy. It turned out in effect that it did none of that sort, and mm-hmm. there was also this enormous problem that, uh, as it happened, because of the nature of landholding at that time, uh, the bulk of the landlords were Hindus, where the bulk of the uh, serfs, peasants, were were Muslims. And this made the Hindu-Muslim riot much easier to generate as those who wanted to generate that riot uh, tried their hands on. And uh, it's uh, it was very difficult. I mean, Congress, which was a secular party, could not go across the barrier uh, of Hindu-Muslim uh, division to a great extent because Hindus were extremely reluctant to lose their land, and that made it very difficult for uh, progressive secular. Mainly secular Muslim leaders like Fazlul Haq to become leader in my part of India Mm -hmm. Bengal, which is where the permanent settlement is also most strong. It's only after India became independent and divided, and East Bengal became East Pakistan became uh, uh, the new. Region of East Pakistan, part of Pakistan, right. and later Bangladesh. That you suddenly Hindu landlords disappeared because they left, and in once that happened, it was much easier to take on the Hindu Muslim issue, uh, and 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 that played a big part in in the transformation of Bangladesh uh, into a in many ways, they're much more uh, progressive parts of South Asia than, than the rest of uh, uh, than the rest of South Asia is. In fact, um, when we are talking about women's education and so on, I could have mentioned that it's women's education and women's liberation that played a very big part in Bangladesh uh, overtaking India in many ways, life expectancy, health care, mm-hmm. family planning, uh uh and, and and so on. Uh so uh the 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 kind of uh duality which I think you are referring to, intending good land reform ending up with terrible, uh having rather the beginning uh, or continuation of uh, women's um, um, uh, exploitation, but things changing. And I think in that change, the Bangladesh Liberation War played quite a substantial role in bringing women into uh, into um, um, prominence. So I think there are a lot of dialectical material to be looked at when things go quite differently yeah. from what is
1: expected. Absolutely. I'd like to remind our audience, too, that if you have questions uh, for Amartya Sen, you can send them in uh, through the chat room, and then we will uh, ask them of him. Um, the Muslim-Hindu issue, uh, which was such a disaster at partition, do you feel that that's uh, rising again, that the same issue is being used politically, and or, or do you think that this is still pretty much in the mode that it's been for the last couple of decades.
0: No, I think it's rising again. And a great extent, I mean, Pakistan never tried to eliminate that distinction, but India had reason to be proud in trying to do that. But then it's, those days are gone. <laughs> and yeah. the present government seems quite keen on on generating... Hindu-Muslim enmity. Uh, mm-hmm. My grandfather, and I mentioned him as his house, which is where I was born. Uh, he, he was a great Sanskrit scholar, but he was also scholar of medieval uh, joint work of Hindus and Muslims in literature, in arts, and 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 and, uh, and uh, creativity in general, and. And that past of India was very big. Uh, mm-hmm. If you can't, you can't think of architecture, painting, uh, not to mention poetry, without Hindus and Muslims being talked together. Now that, mm-hmm. at the moment, is is gone in the, <laughs> gone in the century. I hope not entirely gone, but going into century. Mm-hmm. Present government seems to be uh, is so dominated by Hindu extremism that there is a real attempt to uh, make Hindu, make India into a Hindu uh, state, Hindu mm. country, mm. and I think that's absolutely terrible. It isn't a Hindu country; it has Hindus and Muslims and Christians and Farsi and had always had that. I mean, India could be Mm -hmm. proud of that. Uh, Jews came to India as refugees shortly after the fall of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Christians came to India by about the third and fourth century AD. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, The early Muslim traders, uh, not through the hills as they would come later, but through the trade uh, in, in southern India uh, came very early and often established their own uh, uh, residence and community there. Parsis mm-hmm. came there shortly after persecution began in, in, in first year. So I think in many ways India has reason to be proud of working together, and now suddenly the pride is all in how you can make the life of the minorities as uh, as deprived, as as dangerous, uh, as precarious uh, as it has become. So uh, am I proud of this part of India's history? No, I'm not. Uh, and and I think if this book is written at the time when I was uh, young, to the age of thirty, and uh, one thing is is that is that when there was a the Hindu Muslim division, there were voices across the country uh, against that. Uh, what is in India now, and what was Pakistan uh, at that time? Uh, it would happen.
1: Yeah, there's there's always voices, you know, uh, uh, against this. It's, I think that's one thing for everybody to understand. There's always people talking against the big issues that happen. It happens in America, too. Um, but the, the, uh, the observation you made, I thought, was very interesting in your book uh, that the British and the English and the French, uh, you know, uh, the British, the English, the French, and the Germans uh, were always fighting each other. And then after World War II, they became friends. And and the, the Hindus and the Muslims in India were friendly before World War Two, in India, and then they became enemies in, in in the partition afterwards. And how how did how did that happen? Is that...
0: I think it's quite remarkable. But they, no. I think the lesson lesson to learn from that is that it is possible for enmity to be converted into friendship, and to yeah. a great extent, this has happened, not fully. But to a great extent in Bangladesh, Bangladesh's success lies in partly. I mean, from my childhood days when the Hindu-Muslim riots were quite common, uh, yeah. the faith has been turned, and the uh, the uh, the big, uh, for example, the big uh, uh, NGOs in India, back uh, uh, or the uh the government bank and so on. These have a kind of attempt at Hindu Muslim unity which is not only been good for the business success and the social progress, but also for um unity of the people. And Bangladesh if it overtaken India quite co- comprehensively in mortality, fertility, health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, life expectancy and so on Uh, I think that attempt at being attempt to being together has played a big part and uh, India is not only heading in this effect in the wrong direction, not only in terms of um, making the life of minorities precarious but also in terms of making the progress of the nation that much more difficult. This is a fact which we should recognize and mm-hmm. the uh the need to move back to uh, a secular uh the secular tradition of India, of which we have every reason to be proud, uh, uh is is quite important. <laughs> I Sometimes uh, I'll give a odd question that is there? Do you know of a great building in India which was built uh, by um, uh, Muslim architect in 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 memory of the first translator? Of Hindu scriptures into mm-hmm. foreign language, and the answer is that at because because uh, the Hindu scriptures, the uh, the first uh, one of them, Gita and so on, was translated by the eldest son of uh, Jahan Darfico, and yeah. he he translated that. From Sanskrit to to Persian and Arabic. And his mother was Mama Taj Mahal, in mm-hmm. whose memory the Taj Mahal was built by his father, Shah Jahan. So there's a mixture here. The first translator of Hindu scriptures is also mm-hmm. the builder of the greatest. I think one of the greatest monuments of a Muslim queen in the world. And I think that mixture summarizes India in a way that we have reason to be proud. And in my little memoir from very early days of my own childhood, uh, I remember when I discovered this connection, I was... Mm -hmm. I was quite stunned, and I can mention 20 other such connections, that you cannot think of Hindus and Muslims separately in India. It's not a question of tolerating each other. It's a question right. of working together, yeah. and that's really quite central.
1: And, and uh, you know, I think for people who aren't aware of the statistics, I mean, you, you, you talk about the Muslims as a minority, but it's uh, 300 million people. It's not... It's, it's, it's not a small it's not a small uh you know number um and uh, uh, by the way i'm doing a uh, we're doing a program at the commonwealth club on february 11th about shah jahan's taj mahal um, yeah yeah and and we have uh, a khan uh, coming from uh, from uh, muslim uh, the uh, aligarh university uh, to speak yeah so questions we have some questions i we have um uh a couple of questions that came in and I want, you know, we have a little bit of time left, so I'm gonna going to ask um, a couple of these. But I want you to talk a little bit about your your, your teaching at Cambridge and, and uh, Harvard and Berkeley and 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 Stanford. I mean, and how did you how did you well Let me before we, before we get to these questions. How did you get in at such a young age to all of those places? And and because you were very young when you were, were succeeding as a professor.
0: Yeah, well, I was quite lucky, I think. I was lucky, <laughs> and, uh, I quite had lucky good teachers, are. and I think I have got indulgent teachers. And uh, yeah, I think I, uh, in Cambridge, I had a ma- major disagreement with the main Cambridge School of Economics, neo-Keynesianism, mm. uh, and I, my views were well known to everyone even when I was quite young and yeah. there was a question whether they would let me uh, let me teach some uh, theory of my own. And eventually I did succeed, so I was lucky, I have to say, and um, I'm not unhappy that I was lucky.
1: <laughs> but, but, but you became the master at, at Trinity, did they do that in order to stop you from teaching? <laughs>
0: No, but that happened much later, though. I became head of head of the big, college, biggest college in Europe, namely Trinity. Yeah. But that happened much yeah. later.
1: <laughs> well, let's let's ask a couple of questions here. All right. So we have one. Why do oh why do over half of India's population still live on less than seventy five cents a day? Why do over half of the population and you still live on? under 75 cents a day. Is that an an up-to-date number?
0: Well, whether or not it's up-to-date, it's it's certainly a good question, namely that uh, why are people so poor? And Mm -hmm. uh, the answer to that question uh, must relate to the way the economy is run, the way wealth is distributed, uh, the way the poor are neglected, uh and and so on. So for mm-hmm. that uh uh I have actually a book called Development and Freedom and may I uh very modestly suggest that the questioner might have a quick look at that.
1: Uh, there's a question about Burma and the Rohingyas, which is interesting because I haven't gotten to that. Uh, but you you, you discussed that because you had your childhood in Burma and you make very interesting comments about what's going on and even Suu So So uh, maybe you can tell a little bit about, you know, where you thought it was going and your disappointment in Burma. Uh, uh, Myanmar, as it's called now. But it was Burma when you were a child.
0: Well, I would call it Burma. Actually, Myanmar is a term yeah. that they, that they militarily... Uh, Uh, software arrived. Now, Obama had been a country of huge tolerance, Uh, but when the uh, uh, military took over, they tried to cultivate every division that existed. And I think while Suu Kyi was a great leader in leading the bulk of the Uh, Burmese population against the military rule initially though she she herself changed on that later Uh, she wasn't as sympathetic to the flight of the minorities uh, and particularly Muslim minorities uh, in Mm -hmm. the form of Rohingyas. I do discuss that quite a bit in the book and uh, it's uh, not to Uh, uh, Shruti's credit that she did not go in that direction and that did not serve her very well in the long run either. Now she is back in prison and being uh, badly treated by the military uh, which she thought she may have thought she would avoid by um, following the regime about that uh, it didn't happen.
1: Well, we have time for uh, one, one more topic. And that is, uh, I mean, I'm gonna pick it. Uh, you you mentioned that economics in the 20th century, uh, academic economics, uh, really focused on what could be measured. You know, that it couldn't be measured very accurately then, then it wasn't uh, paid attention to, like your, your topics in, in economics. And I found that interesting because the same thing's true in physics. Um, and other sciences that, that a large part of of the sciences of the 20th century had this limitation that they imposed on themselves, which was if we can't measure it, it's not interesting to us. But most of our lives are are things that are hard to measure, uh, and and uh, as you said, the, the the political issues at the same time as the economic issues. And so, first of all, I'd like to thank you for focusing uh, economics on other issues, and 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 still. Scientifically analyze and reasonably analyze it. You know of how this works. How how can we make this work? What's our outcome? Because I I think sometimes if you if you uh, make the assumption that everyone's going to be reasonable, well, first of all, that's a fi- an un, un, <laughs> untenable assumption. But if you do make that assumption, y- you could have very good rules, just like uh, in the perm- permanent settlement example. You. You can have very good rules, but because nobody feels they can get an advantage over anybody else, they lose interest in the whole game, and and pretty soon the economy goes down. And I think people should pay attention to the fact that human beings want to win at the game, and and if you if you make the game too rational, they don't want to play the game anymore. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a good thing, <laughs> but 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 it happens.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I would. Uh... There may be an element of deception in that happiness, (laughs) but, you know, I think the measurement issue is a complicated one in the sense that quite often the big problem in economics has been that they have tended to think that measurement would be like in physics, like uh, mass, velocity, uh, and so on, where there is a kind of precision that you may not have in uh, such ideas is happiness or um, uh or, or being successful and so on and mm-hmm. so one of the most important thing is to broaden the understanding of measurement uh and and that is most of my work or quite a lot of my work uh has been concerned with broadening the idea of what we could say, we prefer X to Y, what can it Mm -hmm. mean? And how do we treat that? Uh, If we vote for A rather than V, what are we doing? And how would you explain it? So I think uh, measurement is important, but giving the right kind of understanding to measurement in economics, which is a subject of uh, human concern, uh, is very important. So I'm glad you brought it, but if we had time, we could have yeah. <laughs> discussed it in greater detail.
1: Yeah, because it's a, I think it's crucial for <clears throat> economics to serve human life um, that it's. As you mentioned it's not it's the gross national product can go up uh, if there's a hurricane and it blows everything down and then everything has to be rebuilt it increases the gross national product. but when you're done, there's been no difference at all basically unless the houses have been built better et cetera et cetera so you 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 have to have some way of measuring our and and it also seems to me anyway that in a society that's hoping for the population to stop growing. Uh, that growth economics, which is what, what drives everything, will have a t- difficult time measuring whether we're getting better off or not under the circumstances of, of having fewer people. Um, so there's 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 different issues that are at odds with each, yeah, each other. Yeah,
0: that is a very big issue, and I don't think yeah. we, we have at all the time to discuss it.
1: No, we don't. And, have and time I think <laughs> the
0: confusion on that subject is so rampant that yeah. uh, it's very tempting, but I'm afraid. I cannot satisfy my 10 <laughs> at this hour.
1: <laughs> all right, great. Well, thank you very, very much, March Sun, for joining us at the Commonwealth Club and for for uh, telling uh, your stories uh, from your book Home in the World. Um, good luck with that, and thank thank you so much for all the the work that you've done uh, in your life. It's really amazing.
0: Thank you very much. Very kind.
1: All right, and so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club uh, in its one hundred nineteenth year of enlightened discussion. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again soon.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate.